0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of this podcast series by the Programme in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we like to call it, the PIN Podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today on the podcast, our interviewers include myself, I am Elizabeth, a graduate student, and...
1: Hi, I'm Nidhi, and I'm a research aide.
0: And of course, The most important part, our very special guest today is Dr. Natasha Lelich She's a senior nutritionist at Emergency Nutrition Network, ENN, at the UK, where she's focusing on adolescent nutrition, management of infant and child wasting, and concurrence of wasting and stunting. She has extensive experience implementing research projects in several countries, including Bangladesh, South Sudan, Kenya, Mali, and I think Malawi during her uh, PhD. And so we're very, very excited to have you in our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Lance Bell.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Right. So to just get us started, we are really curious uh, about what you do in, in your work right now. Uh, what is it to be at the, working at ENN? And so would you tell us a little bit more about what's your normal day in your life? What do you do uh, at your work?
2: Yes, sure. Um, So ENN specializes in something we like to call knowledge management. So it's all about trying to kind of facilitate the translation of academic research into field practice and also into policy changes. So a lot of my everyday work is about undertaking secondary data analyses or reviews of existing evidence. To try and work towards some kind of policy change, or to inform field practices, and we started off very much as a, an organisation that focuses on emergency contexts and nutrition in those contexts, hence the name. But now we do a lot more than that. Any kind of lower middle income context nutritional issue, and uh, yeah, my main focus is adolescent nutrition. So. I do reviews or um, analyses on that topic. And there's a lot to do on adolescent nutrition in terms of moving the policy dial and programs because we don't do very many programs for adolescents, especially in emergencies. So, yeah, we have a big job and a lot of facilitation and um, knowledge that we try and bring together and, uh, and bring about change.
0: That sounds very interesting.
2: And, and a little bit taken from there, will you tell us a little bit more about
0: those issues in, of adolescence in emergency, in the emergency mm-hmm. context, or, or a bit more about, you know, your priorities or what you see as priorities uh, in this area of adolescence research and nutrition?
2: Um, One of the biggest issues about adolescents, especially adolescent girls, is micronutrient deficiencies. So a lot of their current programming will focus on anemia prevention or anemia treatment. And then other issues, we have the use of adolescent growth spurt as a second window of opportunity to try and Reorientate the path of uh, an individual who might have had some past nutritional challenges. I think the evidence is a little bit shaky about how much you can overcome early life insults um, in terms of nutrition, but it is it is a period of growth and development second only to the first one thousand days. So it's it's a really important time biologically. There's got to be some importance there, and and also socially, adolescents are developing their Lifelong eating habits, and um, we want to have them, them have the opportunity to have healthy eating habits, access to healthy diets. So, yeah, a micronutrient deficiencies diets, and then there's also stunting and undernutrition or thinness in adolescents that's a big focus of us. And obviously, the double burden of micronutrient deficiencies combined with overweight and obesity is also a growing problem. So, we have a really broad Range of nutritional problems that we consider. We also have to consider the fact that adolescence is a really key time for preconception or when a girl might become pregnant or about to become pregnant in some contexts. And this has really important implications for the future generation. So, we, for so many reasons, need to have good diets and good nutrition during the adolescent period. And we find that adolescents often lack the agency to be able to advocate for their own good nutrition in their household, potentially, uh, or in their community. They lack the means to be able to buy healthy foods. And um, they tend to be a really vulnerable population, especially adolescent girls, especially in, a, in an emergency. they might also be barriers to accessing services like Risk of sexual violence, etc. So, there's an awful lot to consider in in how to improve nutrition of
1: adolescents. Thank you so much for sharing all this. And you did bring up some really interesting and very good points about why adolescents' nutrition is so important. And I was just curious to know have you always been interested in this topic? And how did your PhD program or PhD training help you gain skills that you need right now in your work as a senior nutritionist?
2: I loved my PhD so much. It was one of my kind of favourite times in my life because you you run your own research project, yeah, and you and it's such a great time for learning. So I I really loved my doing my PhD, and I did it in Malawi, and we collected data on um, survivors of severe acute malnutrition, and um, so it was seven years after they'd been discharged from treatment looking at if they had any indicators that might suggest they're at risk of future non-communicable diseases and it was quite early so the kids were you know severe acute malnutrition or severe wasting tends to hit around the age of one or one and a half so the kids seven years later were eight or nine ten years old so it was pretty early to be finding non-communicable diseases in, in that group, but they were approaching adolescence. So that's where I became um, really interested in adolescent nutrition and thinking if they did have long term implications or long term kind of effects of having had this severe nutrition in the first two years of life, severe malnutrition, is there anything we can do for them in adolescence? How can we like maximise um, their growth and development and social development during the adolescent period? So that's how I became interested in the topic of adolescent nutrition. But more generally, I learned a huge amount of skills and um, doing my PhD. So mine was a very hands-on PhD. I was there in Malawi collecting the data, measuring a lot of the children myself or Well, I had some data collectors as well, but I saw most of the children myself and kind of managing that system for recording data, data cleaning, data quality, and then came the data analysis and the writing. So to see something from beginning to end like that was incredibly valuable. And uh, yeah, skills I've carry with me and still use today all the time.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your PhD training journey with us. And just going back on that, I was wondering if you have any advice for current PhD or graduate students in international nutrition that you would like to give out?
2: Yeah, I always kind of say to students I've worked with, because I've taught quite a lot on master's programs here in the UK, um, emergency nutrition or nutrition for public health. And I always say to those students, if they're interested in staying in academia or going on to do a PhD, just stay connected with your supervisors, with your professors, because uh, that's how it worked for me. I had a really good relationship with my supervisor at University College London, where I was doing my master's, and we then together developed my PhD study. So that set me off on my whole path. Another way I got into emergency nutrition was I did an internship um, at Action Against Hunger at the UK office, or Action Contre La Femme. they an international organization. There is a New York office, which is actually at Hunger USA. Yeah, the biggest office is in France. But I learned an awful lot from them about emergency nutrition. I helped them put on a conference, but I met a lot of people. And networking is really important. It's small field and small community um, so yeah you need to find someone to help you along the way someone more senior than you and yeah just come with ideas and I don't think there's any bad ideas just I'm always putting even now just putting ideas out there and 90% of them don't land but sometimes they do so um, that's what I would say
1: Okay, so now going back to the piece about staying connected with your supervisors and networking, you said that staying connected with your supervisors is really important and networking can also help you land a good job. So do you have any advice for the trainees about how they should build a good network and how they can stay connected with their mentors and other people in international nutrition?
2: Yeah, um, I'm not one to kind of network in the traditional sense like go out there and just like say hi to strangers and things like that like I'm it's just not me I'm not that confident but the way I did it was by like I said being enthusiastic putting forward ideas where I could and I said yes to any opportunities that came my way and I was just really willing so straight after I did my master's my supervisor happened to be looking for someone to help him on a systematic review for the WHO on malnutrition in infants less than six months. And he needed someone to run around to the libraries and get these really old papers from like, the 1950s and 60s that had come up in the search results but that weren't available online and take pictures of the actual physical uh, pages of the journals. And um, so I did that. And yeah, I learned so much and we continue to work together and, yeah, build things. So I would I'd just sort of, yeah, enthusiasm, say yes, put out ideas.
0: Well, and, and a little bit tied to that, I guess I'm curious to know, how do you stay connected between academia and organizations like institu- research organizations and institutions like ENN, for example?
2: Yeah, I think I've found this little niche of um, organizations or NGOs that are quite research orientated but they're not actually universities. So I I did a bit of work at universities at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, University College London, and then I also was at Sick Kids in Toronto um, in their global health department for a bit. Um, and then there's yeah, definitely some organizations that do research. So Action Against Hunger, I already mentioned, they do a lot of research, um, more operational research. So they need the advice of people who have research experience or but that will work in they often partner with a, a university or something like that and they they had the ones that run the programs so they are the ones that are treating these kids every day so you need them as a partner if you're in a university basically so actually it's hungers one they yeah they used to have something called no wasted lives which was very much about um, pushing research forward and um, Enn, yeah, we are like I said, knowledge management. So it's very much about collating academic research. There's definitely others. I haven't worked with them personally. I mean, Médecins Sans Frontières do quite a lot of research as well. MSF or Doctors Without Borders.
0: Uh, thank you. This is, uh, I think, very useful for not only us individually, but like the audience of the podcast to to try to build uh, connections or bridges between academia and, and mm. uh, organizations that have like operational or, or hands-on uh, experience at, at the international level. Mm. And, and a little bit picking up from that, like, what's well, your experience in a way in sort of like staying updated with methods and, and, and you know, synthesizing evidence or, or data analysis, sort of like staying up to date uh, while you still have a very busy life.
2: Um, I do make time to read but I don't find it a chore anymore I don't have to like put aside several hours a week to do it I, I receive quite a lot of summaries into my inbox of research um from different organizations that put together summaries so I find that really useful we publish um, a magazine at TNN called Field Exchange it's it is a physical magazine as well, but it's also online. And we do a lot of research summaries in there. So they tend to be like 500 words uh, or little snapshots of different research. That's a really nice way to stay up to date with new publications in emergency nutrition. Yeah, so so that way I, and I feel like you get to a point where you have a good enough base knowledge of the literature to be able to read something quite quickly and go, okay, yep, I've added that to my mental library but it did take me a few years I think to get to that point where it wasn't arduous to read new papers and new methods etc but uh, I kept at it and it
1: definitely got there. It sounds like you you have a very fulfilling career and you really enjoy what you're doing and we can certainly account that for having a good line of mentors I guess so I wanted to ask you, uh, what is the best advice that you have received as a trainee or as a staff at ENN?
2: I think probably good advice I've received is that to have quite a thick skin. You know, when you submit a paper, um, reviewers can be a little mean. You submitting a grant application, it can be disheartening. It's hard to land some research money, uh, it's hard to land a grant for an NGO. And you have to keep trying and not get disheartened. So I definitely had to learn that. I submitted my master's uh, research project to a journal. That was the first publication I had. And that was another way that I really kept in with my supervisor. So after my master's had finished, I worked with him to transform the project into a paper. And I got that experience of peer review and the submission process and everything you have to have to do to publish a paper which was really really useful so I would recommend if you've done any research during your undergrad or master's to try and publish it for the the learning experience of it and to have that thick skin if the reviewers are just not very friendly and not very nice it's their job to pick it apart and then uh, hopefully you get through or you try somewhere else and just uh, keep your head up
0: Well, thank you. And I think maybe our last question will be tied to that. Let's see. This is a little bit of a tradition in this podcast. The usual last question is, uh, what is the worst and best thing about your job, about what you do?
2: Yeah, I think the worst part for me is probably, yeah, the, the financial side, the grant applications and kind of in a lot of, NGO research and in academia you're almost responsible for bringing in your own salary in some ways you always need to be thinking about the next grant and at least if it's not your salary at least it's to fund a project so that you've got something to do and I yeah I find that bit a little bit tedious but the best thing is seeing policy like having real life policy change. And I think we do see we at ENM work a lot with um lots of UN organizations and we see actual global policy change. Something that we did at ENN was kickstart this movement on the management of infants less than six months, which I talked to you about was one of the I I, I went around taking photos of those old papers for a review back in 2013 by the WHO and at that point there was nothing in the WHO wasting guidelines on if it's less than six months it just started at six months to 59 months and so practitioners were saying to us at DNN we have babies who are showing up four months old and we don't have any advice or any guidance on how to manage them when they're very uh, small or nutritionally at risk so uh, it, was, it was ENN that collated a lot of the evidence on that. And, but now we, ha- we do have guidelines in the WHO uh, for infants under six months. So it is, it's really exciting to see uh, real life change as a result of our work.
0: Well, thank you so much for that. This leave us in a, in a great note, especially for everyone uh, working hard to get through PhD and, and going through almost maybe the end of the semester here at Cornell. So, you know, keep at, keep at it. Uh, we, heard, we just heard about an amazing experience and how we can uh, have real uh, effect and real change in policies. Dr. Lellivel, thank you so much for being with us. We really love to learn about what you're doing, what you've done before. And, and I think we have great advice to keep with us. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening.